Thank you all for tuning in to episode six of the AFT Construction Podcast. We've had a lot of fun with all of our guests and their different backgrounds and mindsets. And today, our guests are Mike and Mike with ECS Homes. They are a luxury builder in New Jersey. They also do a little commercial residential. So stay tuned for our conversation with them. And out of curiosity, how many of you guys are listening to this podcast and other podcasts at one and a half speed? If not, do so on the bottom left, uh, at least for iTunes. That's something we do. And enjoy. So welcome to the AFT Construction Podcast. I am Brad Levitt. I'm super excited today because I have Mike E and Mike A with me today. Hi, guys. This is Mike E from ECS Homes. This is Mike A from ECS Homes. So we're honored to have them. They uh, build some amazing projects. If any of you aren't following them, we'll make sure that we get their social media tags here at the end. They build out of New Jersey. They have some incredible projects. I've been out there to visit them and fortunate to host them for a couple of days in Phoenix. Um, so really, one of the purposes for them coming out there, I wanted to ask, you know, Mike, what, what was one of your main purposes for wanting to come to Phoenix? Well, as a company, we're always looking to better ourselves and searching for sustainable growth as we enter an interesting time in the industry. And we obviously follow Brad and have become friends over the years and are very impressed with his operation. So we wanted to come here and take a kind of internal look at structures and processes and see how he was able to go from you know, a two, three-person firm to the eight-person firm he is now and continuing to grow. So that was really the goal here. Well, it's interesting. One of the conversations we've been having a lot, and I know a lot of our questioner or uh, listeners have asked this as well as myself when I was there a couple of years ago and I was networking with other builders, is just trying to understand how to get over that hurdle because it seems most builders, they feel that pain when you hit that $5 million tier, it seems, right? Once you get over that and you start increasing that revenue will typically your jobs increase in size and difficulty. And we, <laughs> I know my staff sometimes feels where it's that mentality. We bring on a super, we have a hire and we take them to the end of the pier, kick them off. And it's like sink or swim, right? So what systems are we doing internally? So before I get to kind of how we're doing things, AFT, what are some of the things you guys have been doing or maybe will be doing after this visit uh, at ECS? So I think it's important for us to bring in a project coordinator, someone in the office. We recently acquired office space. And um, right now I've been doubling as, you know, a secretary, assistant, PM, um, you know, handling estimations, kind of a little bit of everything. Mike and Will, who Will unfortunately is not here. He's a part of our team as well. And my wife, Nora, they all contribute as well. But there wasn't a real clear defined Um, set of tasks on any one person. So I think that we're going to go back to the drawing board when it comes to that. I feel that our execution on the job sites is, uh, you know, exceptional, I'd like to say. It could always get better and we continue to strive to get better. But really where I was lacking and we were lacking as a company was in the office. So that's where we're going to apply our focus when we return. So you touched on something, Mike. You talked about, um, you know, tasks, defining tasks and roles. And I found that you know, this is a discussion we've had. I think any company be successful, and it doesn't matter what industry you're in, whether you're in sales or marketing or, um, you know, hospitality, construction. I mean, all of these things, we all have different roles. And f- this is a, a topic I've touched on with, with other guests is that as you can clearly define the roles so that as you have those in the field that understand what they need to be doing every day and then you have an ownership group that understands their talents and what they're good at, it really allows the talent – you know, to grow and come into their own and be empowered, right? On the field, which we need to be as business owners, you need to empower your people that work for you. So let's go, Mike. I mean, you're in the field, right? So you're dealing with this stuff. So what is your perspective, you know, 
being in the field? How do you think defined roles could help you just from an employee perspective? So as an employee perspective, I think defining roles will just give a clearer picture of who does what and when. That way there's no crossing over each other and going, wait, did you do that or did I do that? Uh, I think it will just make it a more efficient system uh, and it will be less effort. Uh, I shouldn't say less effort, just more more streamlined, more more intuitive to everyone and understanding. And then each person will get that much quicker and more efficient at what they do because it's a repetitive process over and over and over. And as time goes on, we tweak it to make it even better. Well, we we were discussing one thing this morning um, because you, you alluded to this, Mike, as you were talking about it's, it's a matter of defining roles so that there's less crossover, right? Mm-hmm. We're not doubling up efforts so it makes us more effective. And Mikey and I this morning, we were discussing just um, a couple of issues in the field with some of our staff. And we had a little training where um, you know, we had laid out with our superintendent that a real successful way to organize, especially on the finished side of a home, is to take your design book that we have, use that design book, take the images and the elevations and the renderings that we have from our designer or architect, get those put on the wall, make sure they're current, and then use those as a basis for all the trades coming in the field. And it creates less mistakes. You know, we try to be here and check everything that they're doing, but sometimes if we're offsite, you know, the trades have clear direction. Um, because pictures show a thousand words. Sometimes we sit on Instagram, we look like everything's perfect. And, you know, so how, how does coming to a different region and looking at different construction methods change your understanding of how you're doing things in New Jersey, Mike? To be quite honest with you, it was encouraging to see because a lot of the methods you guys were performing in the field, we do as well. Um, you did mention about using updated drawings and posting things um, on the job site walls. And we've also had those instances, no one's perfect, right, where you get an amended drawing, but it doesn't get uploaded. And now you're working off of an old drawing, and then you have that aha moment, and that aha usually costs you money, right? So we're always striving to make sure that we do have the latest updated information um, on everyone's you know, technology, also printed out on the sites. You guys, I noticed you label the floors. Um, you had specs on the actual concrete floors that um, – corresponded with the design pages so that each trade that walks in there can kind of just go back and find the specific detail. The direction of the flooring was marked out. You know, you're essentially dummy proofing things, right? And it's really important to do that because sometimes you automatically think this is common sense and they're going to know, but until you actually label it in black and white, it could potentially go wrong. Well, and let's, let's back up a little bit and maybe this is, um, I want to touch on this again where you're going, Mike, with just the pre-planning, you know, especially at the rough stage of construction. But let's talk about this from an owner perspective and a builder perspective. So we found over the years, and this is important for our clients to hear as well as us as contractors, is the most successful projects we've had is when we're brought on from the very beginning, right? As a homeowner is looking through, do I want to select a contractor now? Do I want to get the plans done, get three bids? Well, there seems to be this cat-mouse game, and maybe uh, we've done this to ourselves in this industry, maybe with not the most honest contractors or how we do our systems, communication, because we found that when a homeowner really understands their budget, they have a vision for the, dis- the design aesthetic that they want, they know the cost involved, You know, they want to spend, let's just say hypothetically, they want to spend a million dollars on their home. Well, it is super advantageous for the client now to bring on a contractor from the very beginning, sit down with the architect, sit down with the di- designer, and then they can start fine-tuning you know, 
those numbers and make sure that they work so they're not designing something that's not going to be within budget and then everyone's on the back side of that. So, Mike, how is that process for you guys currently right now in New Jersey? We typically, on most projects, will have to bid against other people. In some instances, we're hired um, without any other bidding, which is really the ideal way. And I'm not saying that because it makes our life easier, but the reality is you shouldn't go to an architect, complete your drawings, give them your wish list, have final construction drawings, and then send it out to people to figure out what it's going to cost you. You can't rely on the architect's ballpark range. because He's trying to help you, but the reality is they don't have the knowledge of pricing to the same caliber that a builder does. So you should really engage a builder at the onset. Yeah, they're going to charge a fee for estimating, but they'll apply it towards their management fee. And the reality is you shouldn't be selecting a builder based on their fee. Their fees are typically competitive in the market, but it's a personality game. If the person in front of you has a proven track record and you get along, then that's 80 to 90% of it. Well, you make that point, I think, so that most customers understand our client side, most builders are typically operating at the same revenue or income, you know, sustainability to build their company. So most everyone's at the same level, whether it's a cost plus GMP. Uh, and so it's important to understand that because the, the biggest thing is find an honest contractor and working with them from the beginning. So how, but before we get into this a little bit more, how is that process working currently for you guys in New Jersey? I mean, I'm sure everything has a permit. So you said you're coming in later, sometimes bidding against others. Is there a designer already chosen at this time? Do you have all your selections already made? And if not, what would be the advantage if those selections were done You know, at that time? Most of the time, a designer hasn't been uh, engaged when they're bidding the project. Uh, people in New Jersey, they just want to kind of pick up and move. They want to act now and figure it out later. And that seems to so, be the common. So how thing. are you doing that? Are you working off of allowances at this point? I mean, how are you creating an even playing field against other bidders, you know, for those items that haven't been selected? So what I find, I definitely give line item allowances. I give a good 15-page breakdown um, at the onset before it's even our job. And, and it takes a lot of time to do that. But essentially, every single finished detail is outlined. And my budgets are typically a lot more conservative than a lot of the other competitors. And what ends up happening is, when they're trying to level the playing field of the three bidders, they typically adopt our material budgets. And I'll give you just a small example. We just got a job um, in a town called Paramus, and the other builder had $600 for backsplash material as a budget on a 5,000-square-foot house. And I, I laughed, and when the owner asked me why I was laughing, I said, this is just not realistic. He said, well, you know, just you could use that budget. I said, well, I'm not going to do that because it's misleading you and it's not going to be it. Use my budget. And I gave him a budget that was four times that. And that was still conservative, you know, on the lower side, I should say. But I asked the client for inspiration. I said, I don't want to give you a price for something that I have no idea what you're expecting. So send me what you like. And I can tell you if it's a $30,000 kitchen, $90,000 kitchen. And those are the budgets that we'll input into your allowance schedule until you have a designer or you select what you want. So what's interesting is Mike's alluding to this is that there's a lot of interpretation, right? That's how you're going to interpret the house and not so much a bait and switch, but it's more just what you're interpreting and basing on your job costing and job history. So how would that change? You know, what, what would be the advantage if you had a designer and architect from the beginning and now you have your design book in full? How does that change the process or cost of the project? As a company, we become much stronger bidders because at the end of the day, if we're losing a job, it's because of someone else most likely misinterpreting what the materials are going to be and giving lesser budgets than what will actually happen. So when you have everything spelled out at the onset, 
you're essentially creating a level playing field. That doesn't happen quite often. And I always tell a client that I'd rather you know, displease you with the truth than to please you by lying. And I'll walk away from the job because I'm not going to risk our reputation that we've spent so much time building so that you can think you're going to spend $100,000 less and then later slowly end up finding out that that's not the case. I'd rather you say, you know what, I should have used ECS Homes at the end of your project if you don't choose us. Well, it's interesting. It's, uh, it's funny because this is not a plug for interior designers on this podcast, but, but we will plug them in this sense. We, you know, a lot of clients will come to me and maybe it's happened to both you, Mike and Mike, is that the, the, the owner will say, well, why do I need to spend you know, X dollars on interior designer when I can make these selections themselves? But what they don't realize is the value the designer provides, right? I mean, one thing is there's, there's a lot of work in chasing materials, First of all, understanding all the different products that are out there from plumbing fixtures to light fixtures to paint to, you know, tile. And then a a good designer that understands CAD, that can do CAD drawings and elevations. Well, if you have a full design book, it really takes out all interpretation, right? Because they're specifying every little detail and they're even specking out, you know, heights and where we're going to put our valves. And so there's no details left to the imagination, if you will. So what that allows us, although there's an expense up front for the client in design, what happens is all the pricing is now accurate. We can build quicker because I'm not waiting for information. I'm sure you guys aren't either. So you're, the build time's faster, which is less carrying costs and interest for the client. And then there's less change orders, you know, less hiccups in the game. And so, you know, f- from your perspective, you know, Mike in the field, you know, how does that differ your ability to perform as a superintendent when you have a designer that's specifying things or when you're trying to stay after the homeowner to make those selections? Perfect question. So I now want to connect to the guys in the field how the stress level becomes. So as I call it, preloading the job. Basically, we have all the designs, all the material, everything selected in the beginning. It makes our job easier in the field because now we understand what's going in. So instead of chasing the information and understanding it or missing something and saying, oh man, we have drywall coming in. We have to get X, Y, and Z done because we missed it because the designer just put this in. We understand change orders. That's fine. But it gives us a little more time to thought process, to plan, to to lay everything out, to make that perfection happen. Obviously nothing's perfect, but we try and drive for that. And then it also then relieves me from calling up boss man and saying, hey, you know, uh, we forgot this because the designer didn't send it to us or this was just happening and uh, we can't send this in as a change order and we're going to have to eat that cause. And now boss man's a little upset that he can't eat his steak tonight. (laughs) (laughs) So that's kind of the stress that I get. But the stress comes down less when when the job is planned from the beginning and planning it while we're going. So let me ask you guys, on the projects where homeowners are making decisions and you're waiting on them, how do you uh, make them accountable or vice versa, how they make you accountable for decisions to be made so it doesn't affect your schedule? Say it again, please. So when you are waiting on selections, let's say that you're waiting on a paint color. It's paint phase and you don't have the paint color. How do you make your customers accountable to get that paint color selected? I want to simply say I I don't at at the present time and we need to. we're not as strict as we need to be and it does affect our bottom line. So sometimes we're waiting for weeks on a decision. We'll always be doing something. We'll figure out how to keep the job moving forward. But 
we need to be a little bit stricter when it comes to uh, expectations from our clients providing information to us. But, but to add to that, we do have something already. We have our selection sheet. It has dates from our schedule, and those get updated as we go. Um, but I think uh, just I think who we are, we're just uh, kind individuals, and we don't we don't we don't twist the client's arms. We want the process to be enjoyable and fun because building your dream home is fun. At some points, there are stress levels way high, emotions get involved, but at the end of the day, it's the most enjoyable thing. You're building what you envision, and it comes to reality. So we do do it. It's just, yes, we do have to enforce a little more. Which is tough, because to your point, you want to have that customer service, but at the same time, mm-hmm. you need to make them accountable, right? Mm-hmm. I, I will say from the AFT side, we've learned trial and error, same thing. We've made a lot of mistakes, you know, building our company and brand, and I'm sure some of my previous customers will attest to that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, But one thing I'll say is that where we found the most success as we digress us a little bit is that in Phoenix, the way things operate, and this may be similar throughout the country, is typically whether we're working in the HOA subdivision or we're working in a scattered lot, if you will, Mm -hmm. it's very similar. The architect gets on board, architect comes up with the floor plan, then they design elevations and the roof line, ceiling heights, and then they start working on mechanical, you know, on the the structural engineering side of things. Um, And then at some point, the designers engage, it's submitted for permit, they send it out for bid, you know, and then there's that game of when do we start, what contractor do we select? The, the jobs that have been most efficient for us as a builder is when the very beginning they select their builder, their designer, and their architect. Now what happens is these three firms collaborate as a team, and we understand the budget so we know the customer's end goal. Going back to our example, the customer wants to build a home for a million dollars. Okay, well, all three teams are setting budgets for framing, for roofing, um, you know, windows, tile, etc. So everyone's working together and the minute that that floor plan is done by the architect which is at the beginning and the L- and you have ceiling heights mm-hmm. that the designer now can take that and run so simultaneously once you have the exterior elevations done the floor plan done and the ceiling heights done now the architect it kind of divide and conquer the architect will now get with his engineering team they start doing all the engineering mechanical plumbing and structural and then the designer will start colorizing the house they start figuring out furniture layout you know cabinet heights and valve locations so what happens is the end goal for us is that when that project is submitted for permit at the city which is typically an eight-week process we have a full design book in hand and we have the full drawings in hand so we have from both parties and now we can hard bid and finalize that project and so when it comes to break ground we have all the information in front of us have Whereas the projects we've had that have not been successful are the ones we come in and where maybe we're being nice and they're not making any decisions, you know, until we need them. So as the process is going, we're trying to figure out cabinetry and then we're trying to figure out countertops and it just seems to elongate uh, the project. So do you guys, is is your market, do you have a lot of designers that you work with? So we have had a series of projects that went exactly as you discussed and they were the most successful where the architect... The designer and ourselves were brought in at the onset as a group, and we saw it from beginning to end with the budget in mind. And that is, in my opinion, probably the best way to do it, just because everyone's interests align. Um, we had some instances, I guess the best projects we've done, and these are an anomaly, it doesn't happen often. A client would walk into our showroom 
uh, which is our own house that we built, they'd say, I love it. You do everything. And I'd see them six times in a year and we would send them A, B, and they would say A or B and they would move in and, and be you know ecstatic. So that is an exception, but those have been the easiest projects because it was a trusting owner who understood that you knew what they liked and vice versa. Um, and then the most difficult are the clients that kind of, we can handle it. Well, we know what we're doing. We know what we like. We know exactly what we like. The second I hear we know exactly what we like, to me that means you have a very detailed vision in your head of what you want. And it's actually very difficult for me to extract that information. And those are typically the hardest clients to please because they don't want to hire a designer who can illustrate what it's going to be, even though we always recommend it and suggest a handful of local designers that we have relationships with. Um, And at one point, we end up having to be unofficial designer and assist to finish the project. So how do you do that? I mean, from a a client builder perspective, you know, if you have a client that's coming in And asking you to do that design, they don't have a designer. Does that change your fee? Does that change your process? Has it in the past? In the past, it didn't. Uh, now it does. So we have a client right now that we're getting ready to work with that wants us to handle it for them, and it's a big house. Um, so we're definitely going to create a design package. It's not something I'm soliciting. It's not something that we even want to do. We do it when we have to do it. The reality is I'd much rather recommend one of the close you know, two or three designers that we know are exceptional. But this specific client also really liked our house and they want a lot of the same things. So they, felt, they said that they felt really confident that they can get what they wanted from us. So we're going to handle it for them. But it's not something that I'm looking to sell as an additional service. So from a customer perspective, what would give them, you know, we don't have a customer here in front of us. We have us who have been working up from the other side. But what would give them that peace of mind to say, I'm comfortable with, contract, with this contractor to bring them on from the beginning with that trust? Because there's a lot of trust they're given as they're, given their budget, as they're giving their direction, you know, it's not going to be maybe bid out. So that's always a concern customers have by bringing a contractor early. So do you have any advice for the customer on how to make that selection or how to overcome maybe that mental block? There's a few different kinds of clients and thought processes. And my personal thought process on getting the best possible relationship and choosing the right contractor for you is obviously you're going to interview a handful of people. You're going to probably, if you interview four, you'll write two off right away and you'll be down to two. And then at that point, it's a matter of does he or she understand my style? Does the quality of the finishes in the houses they showed me meet or exceed my expectations? And is his references are his references saying everything that he's telling me. And I feel like the references is really the number one thing that people should be going after because that's an unbiased third party opinion from someone that we don't have a relationship with anymore. If we can build their house three years ago and they could still say, we're so happy that we selected them. And that's an incredible testament to what we're able to do. So I feel that the culmination of all those things should help you decide who you're selecting. And if we're busy, which we are, thankfully, as you are, and a lot of other very reputable firms, that means we're not price gouging. We're not looking to take you for all you got or else we'll be out of business tomorrow. That's a small-minded firm mentality. So if you think the person in front of you isn't trustworthy, don't hire them. Don't try to get them to be at the number you want them to be. You should walk away. You have to hire someone that you trust. I think that's great advice. I mean, so from a customer side, you know, as you're doing your research and looking at builders and there's a lot of avenues to find them, you know, you can through referral reference, you know, social media is a big thing as you're following their 
process and see their projects. One thing that's helped us in addition to all the things you shared, Mike, was um, where we found a set of good expectation is we'll take clients to existing projects, right? And we'll kind of understand their style. And they'll, we, we had a client recently that they said, Brad, we want to do a home and we're, we want to be at X dollars a square foot. And I said, well, that's perfect. I have a home right now under construction that's that same exact budget. Let's go walk it so you can get, so you can get a field of level detail. So that gave the customer a lot of uh, a great peace of mind because as they walked the project with us, they were able to see the level of detail and quality and everything that came in that number because it's almost a dart at a dartboard for our clients, which we need to understand their perspective. So if they're saying that they want a home at a million dollars, well, what does that entail? What do they get for that? And so it's nice to see where they can feel and touch and see that project. Say, you know what, I'm comfortable in this. And so we do want to bring you on to meet with architect and designer, Mm -hmm. you know, from the beginning, from, from the beginning. So from one thing I want to touch upon, because Mike, you, you handle things a little bit different than most contractors. So, you know, it's, it's very common that, um, most invoicing is run through the contractor, whether they're, they're working with the bank, you know, on a construction loan, your process is very different. So talk to us about that process and how it's been successful for you. So about five, six years ago, we went from uh, general contracting or GMP to CM, which is construction management, and it's a percentage-based system. Essentially, our clients pay all of the subcontractors directly. They pay all of the vendors directly, and we get an overall percentage of the project. Our percentage is calculated at the onset and adjusted as the you know the numerical figures change, it, uh, whether it be higher or lower as the project continues, and that's split into a monthly payment. Now, what that does is it simplifies things on our end when it comes to the finances because let's just say it's a two million dollar house, we're not writing you know one point six million dollars, one point seven million dollars worth of checks out to the subs, um, and it creates a little bit of financial transparency for our clients, and that's really what I feel that most people like the most about this method. It's the fact that they're not giving us a few hundred thousand dollars a time because a lot of people are, are hesitant to do that. And I tell them, look, you know, you're going to get a contract from the Mason. Let's say it's a hundred thousand dollars and it's a 10% deposit. Well, ABC masonry, I'll email you a week earlier. I'll need a check on Monday and we'll hand deliver it to ABC Masonry. So you're controlling your finances, and I feel a lot of people in our region specifically, they really like that approach better. Um, we're As a company, we're probably leaving money on the table, right? Because the margins are transparent. There's no kickbacks or anything like that. But I think it's okay for us because we're doing less when it comes to the finances. Well, I think you allude to that. I think there's a lot of, whether you're doing a GMP, whether you're doing Cost Plus, whether you're doing a consultant form as, mm-hmm. as you're doing, um, I think hiring the honest contractor, whether, you know, is being transparent with your client and being fair with them, fair fee, and that there's not kickbacks, there's nothing unethical going on, right? There yeah. needs to be that trust. And um, you guys are very transparent about that. So to just, as we digest this, so typically, let's just say that you're doing a project and it's $100,000 is your fee. So what you're doing is if it's a 10-month project, then they're paying a monthly fee of 10000 to your firm. Now... How do you manage the organization? Because does that ever become a burden for the clients that they're constantly writing checks and trying to manage this? How do you guys manage that whole billing system? Because there's not two elements to a house. I mean, you could have 200 you know, trades and suppliers. Yeah, so we actually put a line item for checkbooks on the initial quote. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, we have all of our vendors, we suggest setting up credit card forms. 
So we have one vendor that supplies lumber windows, trim work, hardware, interior doors. So I would say 30 to 40% of the general materials is coming from that one vendor. And typically our clients are putting their credit cards on file. Um, and then they're getting an emailed receipt with each charge and an explanation whenever necessary. Um, in addition to that, we try to consolidate. So when we're starting our... So let me interrupt you there. So when you're talking, they have their credit card on file. So let's talk about this. So are you giving them a budget from the beginning that's showing... So if they're buying these five scopes of work for X dollars, do they know that amount? And then as you order the material, they just get automatically billed? Or do you need to notify the client that they're going to be billed and get them that invoice? We always provide line item detailed budgets at the onset. So if we're going to use... Uh Framing lumber, for instance, we put a, a budget of eighty thousand dollars. As each f- load comes in, the first load is twenty thousand. They get notified from us that hey, we're ordering lumber. You can expect a card, uh, your card to get charged on Friday. They'll get that charge and then the emailed invoice. Um, same thing for interior doors, trim work, windows, and everything else. Nothing is blind. They know they have a comprehensive budget going into this project. From the core solid cost when it comes to framing, masonry, roofing, window, the stuff that, that doesn't change unless we change scope, all the way down to the bathroom hardware and accessories that haven't even been selected yet, but we do apply an allowance budget to that. So with that said, are you giving them a spreadsheet in the beginning that shows um, each cost per line item and then they're tracking that or are you guys tracking that at ECS internally? So actually both. So most of our clients are pretty savvy and they like i said they come to us because they like the financial transparency so they track to see where they are live you know as opposed to where we started and we also internally have our own system that we're continuing to enhance and and, you know just kind of get a little more sophisticated with but so we're, we're pretty solid on where we stand and so are they and in some cases they'll ask us oh did we end up under that number or over that number, but for the most part, I would say 80 to 90% of my clients, they know exactly where they are in relation to the original budget. And then back to your question about the checks. So if we're starting roughing, you know, I'd ask for our electric plumber, HVAC, you know, all of our um, deposit checks in one shot. So we would, they would mail one envelope with four or five checks, or we would pick them up, whatever's more convenient, depending on logistics and where they live. Um, it's really not that bad. And, and I've gotten this question from Nick Schiffer before as well. And the reality is I've never had one person complain about having to write checks. I think that the, what they're getting, uh, the control of the finances, to them is worth more than the few minutes that it takes to write the checks. So are you ever working are, – are these all cash clients or are you ever working with a bank where they have a construction loan? And how does that process differ when there's a bank involved? I would say 50% are cash and 50% are a bank. And most of the time, of that 50%, 40% are with one specific bank that we have a great working relationship. And the system doesn't change. I mean, we know how to float the disbursements. We know how to make things work. In some cases, we'll get a partial disbursement and we'll have to kind of spread the money around. We're blessed to have a really great group of subs that are almost like extended family. And in some cases, and it's not never fair to ask, but... If we need to wait an extra week for them to get paid, they do it. And that just, you know, in our eyes shows the client how vested we are in their project because the reality is it's not fair. You know, once you start, you should have money in your hand because now they're putting money out of their own pockets. But sometimes if the client 
is in a tight bind because they're waiting for a disbursement, our team and even ourselves, we've deferred management payments. Um, we're willing to do that. And I know that's unorthodox in this industry and not a lot of people do it, but I feel like it gives us that little personal touch because truly we're passionate about what we do. We don't do this because we have to. We do it because we love to. And our growth comes from relationships, not just. So let me turn this real quick uh, to Mike A here. So we all know that not every job goes perfectly. You have the budget set up, owners paying it. So in the field, who's managing like as things come up or unforeseen circumstances, homeowner wants to make a change, change orders. Are you doing that billing in the field? Is that passed to the office? How is that managed? Uh, so it depends on the project. Um, mostly all budgetary stuff goes through the boss man. Because uh, he has a clear picture of what's happening at all times because obviously he's the boss man. Uh, and we're only a group of four, so that's how it's been working. Um, but usually uh, us in the field, we get all the information, we put it together, write up our change orders, emails, all that fun stuff. Uh, and then Mike, the boss man, can present it, uh, a clear picture. Uh, so we in the field kind of set Mike up ready for presentation. And of course, there are some times that us in the field present it to the client or talk over the problem, change orders or this or that. Uh, and Mike has a great trust that we know what we're talking about and he has no worries. So I know that a lot of new companies too, when they start out, it's it's very common for them to do maybe a cost plus or uh, not really consultant because you know maybe they don't have that experience yet like you do. Um, because they don't have that database or job costing, whereas now as you've built that over time, you know, that can really help. So do you, um, is that strategy more based on your market or just on comfortability and overhead that allows you to manage more? I mean, what what came to to execute that process? For the first seven years, we couldn't make money. Um, you know, everything, everything we bid, would we would underbid, we would kind of just find that we spent way too much time we thought we were making money and when we calculated the amount of hours it's like i should just go work at mcdonald's what are we doing here um so i I started to research and study and think that there must be a better way in our market um understanding who our clientele was and we came across this management approach and people were very apprehensive i would say at the onset Um, they didn't seem to believe in it. However, I had a couple of clients sign on really big projects and they absolutely loved it. The projects went so smooth. They're like, this is, I mean, both of them were actual takeovers from the same builder. He kind of left the clients high and dry. And so from where they started in that relationship, they got taken for like a half a million dollars each with me. And I didn't even know that at the time, but here I am presenting them a financial structure that would have protected them and insulated them from that loss. So they were all in. They signed up. We did those two jobs. And then I said, all right, well, we just proved that this model works for us and we were able to execute and we finally made some money and we stuck with it. And the percentages has been tweaked just because the cost of doing business increases, staff increases and whatnot. And also our experience is increasing. And you know, the more we do this, the more valuable we become. It's not that we're making more, we're spending more on your project, we're bringing in better subs, we're constantly looking to revamp and and be innovators, just like yourself, going all to all the builder shows and learning the latest methods that we can implement. Um, So 
it was a series of trial and error that brought us to where we are, and we're so comfortable with it now that I don't think I want to change it. I like where we stand. Well, that's great. Well, that's a testimony that there's a lot of ways to be successful in any construction company, any firm. There's different ways. Uh, you know, re- it varies by region, varies by comfortability. Um, but I think the point to end with is that, you know, Mike, you had talked about, you know, th- there's value there, right? So by them hiring ECS Homes in New Jersey, you know, they, they see the value outside of the fee, if they have really good, talented people that understand the process and understand how to get from A to B and execute, you know, this big investment from the customer, that's the value you're bringing the client, right? Do this continued education. So how can our followers um, find you? Where are you guys at? Give us some hashtags and some of the media fronts you're on, website. Our main uh, social media outlet is Instagram, ECS underscore homes. I got scolded by my good friend Brad yesterday for not being on LinkedIn. So we are now officially on LinkedIn with four followers as of yesterday uh, <laughs> under my name, Michael Lyon. Um, we're also on House, H-O-U-Z-Z, for those who don't know, but I'm pretty sure everyone, unless you're living under a rock, knows House at this point. Um, and that's pretty much it, our driving factor and our driving force and a significant um, uh, amount of our revenue comes from Instagram. It gives our clients an insight to who we are. We do stories every day. They kind of watch them. They either like us or they don't. And if they do, by the time they interview us, they typically have a, a good read on us and know whether or not we're a good fit for the project. So, so again, that's the boss, man. That's Mike E. That's ECS Homes. And what about Mike A here? So Mike A, you can find me at Instagram as well. It's Mike ASQ underscore ECS underscore Homes. Uh, also on LinkedIn, uh, but Instagram is perfectly fine. <laughs> uh, and that's really how you can find me. Well, we uh, would extend an invite for all of you to go check them out. They do some amazing homes in New Jersey, incredible uh, detail work and uh, good friends of ours. And we will be posting their links in our publication as we publish this podcast. Thank you all for listening and tuning in. Thanks again for tuning in to the bonus episode this week with Mike and Mike from ECS Homes in New Jersey. Make sure and go give those guys a follow to see what they're up to next. And we're super excited for next week on episode seven. We host Carolina Cesare. She's a renowned interior designer throughout Phoenix, but does work all over the world and has some amazing projects, both residential and commercial.